the word ekphrasis comes from the Greek for the description of the work of art produced as a rhetorical exercise. It is a vivid, often dramatic, verbal description of a visual art piece. Hi everyone, this is Darwin Mesadu. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of The Ekphrastic, a podcast where we paint pictures with words. As always, please like, subscribe, and follow us on Twitter, on Instagram. We are at The Ekphrastic. And to check out all the artwork we discuss, please visit the website darwindarko.com backslash ekphrastic. Today's subject, Hans Holbein the Younger is considered one of the finest portraitists of the early modern period. He's perhaps best known for painting the who's who during the height of English society at the time. We'll get to know him a little bit better, but first, let's get into some art news. And as usual, we will begin with a little rapid fire. Uh, I'm reading from NPR.org and their uh, fine arts section from the website here. Uh, first up, there's a hidden self-portrait of Van Gogh. Uh, has been discovered. Here's what you can see so far. So this was in uh, this was written July 14th, uh, as it prepared for an exhibit. An exhibit of uh, the National Galleries of Scotland found a previously unknown self-portrait by Vincent Van Gogh, covered by glue and cardboard, um, on the back of another one of his paintings. So that's interesting. Maybe we'll actually read that one. Moving right along, we we know Greek statues weren't white. When we, I know when we go to museums, we see them all in white. Now you can see them in color. Interesting. So uh, a new exhibit in New York shows what the statues actually look like. So they're in uh, at the Met and they're under full Technicolor. So you can check that out at the Met. Um, what else we got here? So climate protesters in England glued themselves to a copy of The Last Supper. Activists from the same group have glued themselves to other paintings at UK art galleries in recent days, calling on the government to end all new oil and gas licenses. And they're pictured here, a giant, giant copy of The Last Supper and they uh, spray painted no new oil underneath it um, on the wall, actually. So they didn't actually damage the painting there. They glued themselves to the frame there. Um, yeah, I'm going to get some time for that one. Alright, moving right along, visual artist Sam Gilliam has died at 88. The Washington DC based painter became famous for his drape works, vibrantly painted pieces of fabric that he hung by clips and could never be presented the same way twice. So that's unfortunate, uh, but the artwork is uh, at the uh, Dia Art Foundation uh, New York. You can find some of that stuff there. So let's get crafty with agar art. What is it? So this next one is agar art. What is agar? A G A R. Uh, let's see. How do I? How am I supposed to pronounce this? Agar art. So survey says agar. Okay, right on. So agar art. So what's happening here? So pull out your art supplies. They write because it's time to get crafty with agar. At the intersection of biology and art lies a creative medium that's actually alive. Scientists and artists practice etching designs on petri dishes with bacterial paint that can grow and multiply. Fascinating. 
I'm probably interested in reading that one too. So we got the Van Gogh, we got the Agar art. Hold on for a second. Put this to the side. All right, so, uh, and uh, last up in our rundown, a quick rundown, Bob Woodward recounts the Watergate story in an art museum. So I know Bob Woodward wrote a book about the Trump administration and a bunch of other things in Watergate and everything. So this one is about the Watergate. So decades after the break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., reporter Bob Woodward visits a national portrait gallery exhibition about the Watergate scandal. So uh, check out NPR.org in their fine art section for a rundown and all that stuff. So let's like dive a little deeper into some of this stuff. So let's look at this. Uh, well, the first one we talked about was the the Van Gogh. Let's let's see what's going on with the Van Gogh. Let's just read this. So I'm reading from the AP. A previously unknown self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh has been discovered behind another of the artist's paintings. The National Galleries of Scotland said Thursday, the self-portrait was found on the back of Van Gogh's head of a peasant woman. When experts at the Edinburgh Gallery took an x-ray of the canvas ahead of an uh, upcoming exhibition, the work is believed to have been hidden for over a century, covered by layers of glue and cardboard when it was framed in early 20th century. I want, do they always x-ray the artwork? I've heard of them doing this before, but I wonder what prompts them to do the x-ray. Maybe it's just standard protocol when you're preparing one of these pieces for exhibition you take an x-ray of it but why i wonder if there was some sort of suspicion um that something was was back there so van gogh was known for turning canvases around and painting on the other side to save money cheap bastard (laughs) the portrait shows a bearded sitter in a brim but i mean he's an artist so you know you you gotta make do with what you got. Uh, experts said that the subject was instantly recognizable as the artist himself and is thought to be from his early work. The left ear is clearly visible and Van Gogh famously cut off his ear in 1888. So Francis Fall, a senior curator at the National Galleries of Scotland said the discovery was thrilling. Yeah, I bet you, know, you got a, a, a hidden Van Gogh on your hands here. So she, uh, she says, moments like this are incredibly rare, she said. We have discovered an unknown work by Vincent van Gogh, one of the most important and popular artists in the world. The gallery said experts are evaluating how to remove the glue and cardboard without harming the head of a peasant woman. Visitors to an upcoming Impressionist exhibit at the Royal Scottish Academy in Edinburgh uh, can see an x-ray image of the self-portrait through a light box. A taste for Impressionists runs from July 30th to November 13th. So that gallery, that uh, that ex- exhibit is still up. You should go check it out, man. Let's look at this uh, this whole petri dish thing. Is oh, there's not even much of a write up on it. Painting with penicillin. Hunter gatherers harvested and heated microbial biogenic iron oxides to produce rock art pigment. Wow. Okay, so there's these several other articles, and it looks like this is something that's been going on for a while. Um, let's click on this one link and see. What the heck y'all talking about? ASM Agar Art Contest. So there's an art contest. What is Agar Art? Agar Art, have you ever seen art created in a Petri dish? Oh, snap. Man, some of this stuff is pretty good. There's one I'm looking at here with like a, it's like a portraiture, like of two people actually. And it's like clearly, it looks like something you might've done with a paintbrush, um, a professional done with a paintbrush, pretty cool. Uh, they continue. Uh, have you ever seen 
uh, art created in a petri dish using living growing microorganisms that's agar art Cre uh, creators use either naturally colorful microbes like the red bacteria serachia uh, marcentians or genetically modified microbes like the yeast uh, saccharomyces nailed it uh, transformed with viol violation genes come on nobody knows what violation genes are okay as paint and various types shapes and sizes of agar as a canvas in fact the original agar artist was none other than alexander fleming himself in 2015 asm uh what is what is asm is that a organization Oh, the American Society for Microbiology. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so you, you folks are getting into the art space here. Everybody doing your own little thing. All right. Uh, bringing awareness to, uh, you know, microbiology. You know, you do what you got to do. In 2015, ASM launched the ASM Agar Art Contest to share the beautiful and diverse world of microbes with the public. Submissions from past years of the contest have been featured worldwide. Now, I don't know how many people are interested in uh, viewing micro art. We've been kind of um, uh, have been have a battle with coronavirus in, uh, you know, <laughs> these past few years. Uh, I think people want to stay away from uh, the likes of microbes and viruses. Uh, but, you know, maybe you can put it out there now, you know, and and and, and uh, there might be some interest brewing in the zeitgeist for that. OK, moving right along. What's uh, let's read a couple of uh, longer pieces here. Uh, this is this one isn't much longer, but this is kind of funny to me. So an Australian artist pulled a pickle from a McDonald's cheeseburger and slapped it on the gallery ceiling. Now it cost sixty two hundred dollars. <laughs> Do your thing. All right. Uh, they begin. Oftentimes in art galleries, the question of whether an object is an artwork leaves onlookers in a pickle. <laughs> oh, my God. We're reading one of those articles. Okay, fine. In the case of one show in New Zealand, the object in question actually is a pickle. For the exhibition, Australian artist Matthew Griffin plucked a pickle from a McDonald's cheeseburger and slapped it to the ceiling of a gallery. The piece is just the size of a quarter. You mean like the size of a pickle that's on a burger, but comes with a price tag worth more than um, $6,200. The artwork simply called Pickle is on view now at Auckland's Michael Left Gallery in Group Show, presented by Griffin's Dealers, Fine Art Sydney. Drawing on a long history of mordant ready... <laughs> I'm, I'm look, this is, this is crazy. I see a... <laughs> I'm looking at this picture of this pickle, this fancy ceiling, it's all white, and, some, and you just throw a pickle at the ceiling, and it's up there. It's just up there. It's stuck. It's up and it's stuck, as the kids say. <laughs> Drawing on the long history of mordant ready maids from Marcel Duchamp's 1917 fountain urinal to the $120,000 banana Maurizio uh, Catalan taped to the wall of an Art Basel Miami booth. I saw that. But then somebody else came and ate it. <laughs> ate the actual banana. But he was a you know, performing artist. Um uh, in 2019, Griffin's Pickle is meant to stoke conversations about the way value and meaning is generated between people. Fine Arts Sydney director Ryan Moore told The Guardian, 
generally speaking, artists aren't the ones deciding whether something is art or not. <laughs> to say Whether something is valuable and meaningful as artwork is the way that we collectively as a society choose to use it or talk about it. So why are we making this a thing? <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, as much of this looks like a pickle attached to the ceiling and there is no artifice there. That is exactly what it is. There is something in the encounter with that as a sculpture or a sculptural justice. This is so absurd. There's articles written about this. I'm reading one on the podcast. <laughs> the lucky buyer. Okay, yeah, I guess somebody had to pay this. Got $6,200. The lucky buyer of Griffin's artwork won't be given the exact pickle. What? But rather instructions for how to recreate the artwork in their own space. <laughs> a gesture that elevates the object beyond those that could be found on a McDonald's ceiling. Uh, okay, I think I could write these instructions for you. Okay, so what you want to do is, first, you're going to want to jump in your car, drive to McDonald's. You specifically want to get a Big Mac, but when you get the Big Mac, have them, you know, don't get it with cheese, right? And have them put extra sauce, right? Whatever that secret sauce is, have them put extra sauce on there. Make sure you leave it in the car for at least 30 to 40 minutes. Even if you, even if your drive home is, is shorter than that, leave it in the car specifically, right? You have to leave it in the car and then uh, go back in the car, you retrieve it, you get yourself some gloves, make sure you're wearing gloves, uh, tweezers, uh, tongs, uh, and perhaps a glass of water because this, this is going to be arduous, okay? You want to surgically remove the bun uh, and with your tweezers, pluck the pickle one corner at a time, lifted from the burger, right? You don't have cheese, so you shouldn't have the cheese problem. Um, we have an advanced uh, instruction manual for those of you who might have gotten cheese on your burger. <laughs> So this is what is it? What are we talking about? This is instructions for how to throw a pickle on your ceiling. Okay, uh, yeah, you know, get your money. I don't, you know, get your money. Somebody gonna pay it? You know, fine. There's a market. It's not finishing off the article. It's not about the virtuosi virtuosity of the artist standing there in the gallery throwing it to the ceiling. More concluded, how it gets there doesn't matter as long as someone takes it out of the burger and flicks it onto the ceiling. The gesture is so pure, so joyful. <laughs> that is what makes it so good. <laughs> art, art, man, a lot of art is a scam. It's it's a scam, but it's like, I, I can't even hate. It's not a scam if somebody pays for it. That's on you. You found value in it and you want the instructions to recreate it. You have the money, go on, do your thing. That, do your thing. Fine. I'll, I'll stop hating. All right. Let's, uh, let's see our, our last deep dive today. Yo, I am very skeptical of, um, you know, celebrities and stuff just jumping into art. You have ex-presidents just jump into art and their stuff sells. It's like, would your stuff really sell if you was just a nobody out there in the street? But is it really good? But look, so Johnny Depp dabbles in fine art, actually. And, uh, and the article says it, and uh, this is from the LA Times, and almost instantly comes out much, much richer. 
his stuff is actually good. I was like, whoa, Johnny Depp, this is you? This article in the LA Times begins, Johnny Depp just made his first public foray into painting and it almost instantly brought in 3.6 million. The actor-musician debuted a collection of Prince Thursday through Britain's Castle Fine Arts Galleries. Uh, hours later, all 780 prints had sold out. Depp had promoted the collection through an Instagram post that showed him sitting on a bench in front of the collection's four pieces. Portraits of Bob Dylan, Al Pacino, the late Elizabeth Taylor, and Keith Richards. Johnny's debut collection, Friends and Heroes, sees him focus on people who, has, uh, who he has known well and who have inspired him as a person. And uh, each image is an intimate reflection of their character in Johnny's eyes, a portrayal of how they have revealed themselves to him. Working from photographic references, each image has been stripped back to a simpler and iconic portrayal of the subject which Johnny has then developed and energized with his characteristic freehand flourishes. Prints were signed by Depp and emblazoned with his Bunny Man logo, which was inspired by his son, Jack. Each print was listed for the, um, the pounds equivalent of $4,000. Um, for 15, 15K, you can get a whole set. I've always used art to express my feelings and to reflect on those who matter most to me, Depp told Castle Fine uh, Art. Like my family, friends, and people I admire, my paintings surround my life, but I kept them to myself. No one should ever limit themselves. The news comes a week after Depp filed an appeal on a jury's decision that he owes $2 million to ex-wife Amber Heard on the heels of their mutual defamation trials. Depp said he was forced to challenge the ruling. Oh, I don't want to get into that thing. We're just talking about the art here. Uh, but it looks like, yeah, they, they just they just use this as a um, as a jump off point to the back to the trial thing. But that's that's the extent of the, the, the description about the art. But yeah, his stuff is actually pretty good. I saw it uh, and I was surprised. I had no idea he had. Uh, apparently, I read elsewhere that um, uh, art was his first, you know, love uh, before he got into uh, to acting. And actually, he has a bit of a musical uh, a musical foray as well so i'm not sure how his music sounds but he's a great actor i'll give him that uh he's a he's a really good painter uh so you know I, maybe it runs also through the music but uh that was some fast fascinating news today in the art world glad we took a little dab dabble into that and before we get uh back to our artist uh, i of course have a book recommendation but it's actually not a book. This one is a documentary. It's called The Art of Making It. Uh, play on word there, The Art of Making It. Um, it sheds light on the broken system of the art world. Artists pay thousands of dollars to get into art school and end up saddled with debt that they struggle to pay off. A teacher at one of the art schools quits teaching because she didn't want to waste her students' time and wanted to make better use of their time by giving them real-world experiences as they help her with art projects. So the director, Kelsey Edwards, examines the systemic issues of the art world thoroughly by including interviews and uh, with art critics, academics, museum curators, art collectors, and struggling artists themselves. The doc begins like an essay by introducing you to the many questions and concepts that will be explored throughout the film. That's a great way to start the film, but it's also a tall order to, f to fill given all the questions that it poses. Chris Watts, 
of the um, artist profiled in the doc struggles to make ends meet while working three jobs as a bartender while finding spare time to work on his art projects. Other artists also profiled include Gina Gribben, uh, Gisela McDaniel, and Sebastian Erezerzia, um, all of whom provide candid insights about their experiences in the art world. So check that one out. You know, send us a message. Let, let us know what you think. And now we can get back to our artist of the day, Hans Holbein. Born in 1497 in Augsburg, Holy Roman Empire, present-day Germany, Hans Holbein the Younger first studied under his father, Hans Holbein the Elder. Holbein was a member of a family of important artists. His father and his uncle, Sigmund, were renowned for their somewhat conservative examples of late Gothic paintings in Germany. One of Holbein's brothers, Ambrosius, became a painter as well, but he apparently died between 15, 15, sometime around 1520, before reaching maturity as an artist. The Holbein brothers, no doubt, first studied with their father in Augsburg. They both also began independent work around 1515 in uh, Basel, Switzerland. It should be noted that this chronology places Holbein firmly in the second generation of 16th century German artists. Albrecht Dürer, which we, we studied before in one of our episodes, Matthias Grunwald, Lucas Cronach, all were born between 1470 and 1480 and were producing their mature masterpieces by the time Holbein was just beginning his own career. Holbein is, in fact, the only truly outstanding German artist of his generation. Back in 1515, Hans and Ambrosius had moved as journeyman painters to the city of Basel, a center of learning and the printing trade. There, they were apprenticed to Hans Herbster, Basel's um, leading painter. The brothers found work in Basel as designers of woodcuts and uh, metal cuts for printers. The same year, the preacher and theologian Oswald uh, Meconius invited them to add pen drawings to the margins of a copy of The Praise of Folly by the humanist scholar uh, Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. The sketches provide early evidence of Holbein's wit and humanist leaning. Trips to northern Italy and France certainly affected the development of his religious subjects and portraiture, res respectively. Holbein entered the painter's co uh, corporation in 1519, married a tanner's widow, and became a burger of Basel in 1520. By 1521, he was executing important mural decorations in the Great Council Chamber of Basel's Town Hall. During his time in Basel, he befriended a number of humanist, print, uh, humanist writers and publishers who promoted and, and commissioned his work. With the Protestant Reformation taking hold in Basel in 1526, the artist left the city for England. His connections with humanist circles brought him to the attention of the uh, writer and politician Thomas More, who commissioned a portrait of himself. Though he returned later to Switzerland periodically, by 1533, Holbein had established himself as the favorite painter of Henry VIII. That same year, he completed his famed double portrait, The Ambassadors. A little on his style and uh, works. So, Holbein's work in Basel during the decade of 1515 to 25 was extremely varied, if also sometimes Derivative. Along with his peers, 
Lucas Cronach, the Elder, and as mentioned before, Albert Durer, um, Halbin's work represented a high point for Northern Renaissance paintings. The artist eloquently combined the nuances of Flemish realism with the rigid structure of late Gothic stylization. A little history on the Northern Renaissance style. So this is a Renaissance that occurred in Europe north of the Alps. Called the Northern Renaissance because it occurred north of the Italian Renaissance. This period became the German, French, English, Low Countries, Polish Renaissance, and in turn, other national and localized movements, each with different attributes. Our tour begins actually in the detailed realism of early Netherlandish painting, led by Robert Campen and Jean van Eyck in the 1420s and 30s. Uh, today, generally considered to be the beginning of the early Northern Renaissance in painting. This detailed realism was greatly respected in Italy, but there, there was little reciprocal influence on the North until nearly the end of the 15th century. Despite cultural and artistic exchange, the Antwerp Mannerist, so this is around from 1500 to 1530, chronology overlapping but unrelated to Italian mannerism, were among the first artists in the Low Countries to clearly reflect Italian formal developments. Around the same time, Durer made his two trips to Italy, where he was greatly admired for his prints. Durer, in turn, was influenced by the art he saw there and is agreed to be one of the first Northern High Renaissance painters. For a deeper dive into Durer, please check out um, our episode. We, this was back in Season 2, Episode 7. Um, just go to their website, it's all listed there. For Holbin, everything began with a drawing. A gifted draftsman, he was heir to a German tradition of line drawing and precise preparatory design. Holbin's chalk and ink portraits demonstrate his mastery of outline. He always made preparatory portraits of his sitters, though many drawings survive for which no painting version is known. This suggests that some were drawn just for their own sake. The drawings emphasized facial detail and usually did not include the hands. Clothing was only indicated schematically. The outlines of these drawings were then transferred onto the support for the final painting, using tiny holes in the paper through which powdered charcoal was transmitted. In the later years, Holbin used a kind of carbon paper. The final paintings thus had the same scale as the original drawings. Although the drawings were made as studies for painting, they stand on their own as independent, finely wrought works of art. He painted a few superb portrait miniatures, also having been taught the art by Lucas Horenbolt, a Flemish illuminator who was also a court artist for Henry. Horenbolt painted Holbin in perhaps his best miniature and the best portrait we have of Holbin, who never actually made any self, uh, self-portraits. In these and other examples, the artist revealed his fascination with plant, animal, and decorative accessories. Holbin's preliminary drawings of his sitters contain detailed notations concerning jewelry and other costume decorations as well. Sometimes, such subjects point to specific events or concerns in the sitter's life, or they act as attributes referring to a sitter's occupation or character. The relation between accessories and face is a charged and stimulating one that avoids simple correspondence. 
Today's ekphrastic poem is a retrospective on the portrait of Nicholas Kratzer. A reminder, here's how this works. Remember, this is going to be a description of a visual art piece. As I'm speaking, I want you to visit the ekphrastic page on my website, darwindarko.com. Check the show notes. There should be a link there. Uh, you will find all the stuff that we talk about catalog for your viewing pleasure. My fascination with this painting specifically of an astronomer happens to coincide with uh, NASA recently unveiling the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, they're, they're gorgeous. These much-awaited pictures show our universe in glorious technicolor. The $10 billion telescope, now a, uh, a million miles from Earth, will allow scientists to look back to the dawn of time. The first images released shows the farthest humanity has ever seen in both time and distance, 30 billion years ago. To accompany today's reading, I want you to pull up the uh, half-length oil-on-canvas portrait of Nicholas Kratzer that was completed in 1528. I'll give you a second to search for it in your browser. Semicircular star, far dram, and the shepherd's dial, continue the work 
out and maybe one day we'll leave this place. This place from this gravitationally bound collection of stars swirling in a spiral. That background track is from Daft Punk's 2013 album, Random Access Memories. It's a great album. The track is called Contact. Check it out when you get a chance. The style of this portrait is particularly in line with the normal approach taken by Holbin for this genre. This is the iconography, for example, which immediately tells us of the subject's occupation. There is also the trademark facial expression that is deliberately vague, neither happy nor sad. The element of this piece that does stand out somewhat is the unusually large amount of, of detail that Holbin puts into the background of the scene. He would normally just depict a subject holding one or two items and leave the background plain or dark. In this piece, he chooses to continue the iconography right across the work all of which ultimately tells us the gentleman's involvement in astronomy. Kratzer, a humanist himself, was a close friend of Thomas More, and from 1519, the rural court astronomer for the service of Henry VIII. He was employed by both More and Cardinal Wolseley. Wolseley, subsequently, whose downfall occurred a year after the portrait was painted. The painting is pivotal in many respects, despite being a product of his first day in England, Holbin developed an elusive style of illustrating his sitter's career to new levels of coherence. Although a display of similar items was to recur in the ambassador's portrait, there they are passive witnesses of mental concerns. While the refreshing directness of Kratzer's practical involvement means that his character is not buried by the artist's determination to include convincing still lives. Compared with the Guilford portraits, a new mastery is evident here in the subtlety of lighting, the elegant range of cream, brown, and black tones, in the pattern of instruments against the wall, and in the presentation of Kratzer's idiosyncratic, heavy-lidded gaze. It is revealing to contrast the humane mood with the archly aristocratic tone of some of the other portraits from Holbin. During his remaining years in court, Holbin produced around 150 portraits. Holbin had definitely survived the downfall of his first two great patrons, Thomas More and Anne Boleyn. But Cromwell's sudden arrest and execution on trumped-up charges of heresy and treason in 1540 undoubtedly damaged his career. Though Holbin retained his position as King's painter, Cromwell's death left a gap no other patron could fill. Holbin died of plague sometime in October or November of um, 1543 in London. He was 45 at the time. Today, the artist's works are held in the collections of the Louvre in Paris, the Met in New York, the National Gallery of Art in London, and the, uh, the Kunst Museum in Basel, of course, and amongst other places. Well, that was very interesting getting to know him a little bit better. I appreciate you guys joining me on this journey. And again, for this and other artwork we discuss, please visit the website darwindarko.com backslash ekphrastic, where you can find all this all of this stuff catalog for your viewing pleasure. If you like the show or if you want to leave some creative feedback, please rate us five stars. Nothing less will do. Uh, and leave a comment. That's always helpful. Uh, another great way to support the show is to share it on your socials, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, 
whatever. Speaking of which, again, we are on Twitter. We are on Instagram at the Ekfrastic. Even on YouTube, just search Ekfrastic Podcast. Follow the show, and whenever we put up uh, new content, maybe we can make our way up your timeline. Again, I've been Darwin Mesadu. Thanks again for listening to the Ekfrastic. <laughs>